Welcome to the Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. Today is Wednesday, April 15th. Abram, today we have a guest that is just about perfect for us. This is going to be very cool. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, uh, but yeah, why don't you let our listeners in? Why, why do you say that? Why is he so perfect for us? So this guest is someone who is actually writing a book on mission-driven bureaucrats. So this uh, the idea for the Radical Bureaucrat, before it was a podcast idea, was actually to write a book about it. And um, so this is exactly uh, along our lines of thinking. And furthermore, we're really just interested in how this crisis is impacting people around the globe. And our guest and his family just returned from Senegal on a State Department evacuation flight. So we know that he has stories. Yeah, I'm super excited. This sounds like it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Yeah. So our guest is Dan Honig. Is that the right pronunciation, Dan? Yeah, that's right. Honig. Okay. So Dan Honig, an assistant professor of international development at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Development. His research focuses on the relationship between organizational structure, management practice, and performance in developing country governments and organizations that provide foreign aid. Mm -hmm. Dan Dan has also held a variety of positions outside the academy. He was a special assistant and advisor to successive ministers of finance in Liberia, ran a local nonprofit focused on helping post-conflict youth realize the power of their own ideas to better, better their lives and communities through agricultural entrepreneurship in East Timor. And he's worked in a wide range of countries, including India, Israel, Thailand, um, and shorter stints in Somalia and South Sudan for international NGOs, local NGOs and agencies, and in developing country governments. He's also a proud native of Detroit, whose black population is really being hit hard yeah. by this virus. Uh, and one more relevant point for our listeners who are uh, from here in New York, Dan's parents are natives of Brooklyn, and he has aunts who were a librarian, an assistant principal, and a principal in the New York City school system. So we have a lot to talk about. Dan, welcome to the show. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I actually am a, a, uh, a proud subscriber to the podcast as well. I think I started listening with, uh, I don't know, maybe episode two. Um, I actually don't know how. I, I mentioned to my wife, uh, we were talking and I said, oh, so thank you for sending me that link. And she said, no, no, I don't think that came from me. She she thinks about uh, bureaucracy, studies bureaucracy as well. So I have no idea where I picked it up, but uh, have been uh, have been super fortunate to be able to benefit from your your conversations with folks and your wisdom uh, over the past whatever it is year year and a half, and uh, really really honored to be here. So oh, thanks. That's, that's awesome. Really that nice is a hear. milestone. Glad to hear it. Awesome. All right, so you're writing this book. Uh, about mission-driven bureaucrats, and I'm I'm super curious. I'm sure you define that in the early part of the book, um, but is it what can you give us in terms of a preview and uh, what was really the the um, you know the the origin of where this work came from? Like what 
what were you learning that that made you feel like you needed to write this and 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 get this message out yeah sure i mean i guess uh it's a little bit connected you know um i mean one of the things i love about your podcast and you know i looked at your uh about page on the web uh you have this um you have this line at the end of why the radical bureaucrat where you say we believe good government matters institutions matter uh all of us matter right uh and i think i i, I share that view and you know the book kind of came from that last thing the idea that all of us that is uh, all of the individuals who work in the system matter to what happens in the system um mm -hmm. so you know working with developing country governments working back home in detroit working you know running a hospital gift shop you know it, all the various jobs i've had in various settings it seems to me that uh, one constant, and you hear this from management folks all the time, is that uh, the people who are part of the system, uh, you know, are one of, if not the strongest influence in terms of what actually happens, what actually comes out of that system, yeah. uh, what policy gets made. Um, but then, you know, as I kind of wandered into academia about a decade ago, uh, transitioning from uh, from a career as a as a practitioner, uh, I found myself realizing that, uh, you know, academics realize that as individuals uh but they don't as kind of a community that is to say all of our models about how bureaucracies work what makes them change etc focus on big structural features right uh you know crises lead to change mm -hmm. elections lead to change popular mandates etc uh but there's not a lot of space for the kind of individuals in the system who are so much of both what changes the system, what rocks the boat in the language you, uh, you mm -hmm. sometimes employ. Uh, and even when we're not trying to rock the boat, what keeps the boat, you know, operating smoothly or getting where we right. want to go, et cetera. Right. Um, right. and you know, I mean, uh, maybe just, you know, one kind of example of that, you know, um, for a couple of years, I was, uh, for the minister of finance in Liberia. Right. Uh, and in that context, uh, we had a ministry. Uh, the ministry was composed almost entirely of people who'd been appointed by Charles Taylor uh, or his allies, right? People who, uh, Charles Taylor, the war criminal, if you've ever seen the movie Lords of War, that's like a stylized account of him, mm -hmm. right? So uh, went to jail after, uh, after going on trial in The Hague, right? So, you know, this was a bad dude. Uh, the people who had been appointed by him and his allies had been appointed specifically because uh, they wanted uh, largely to defraud the government, right? These were not folks like uh, like the two of you, folks like most of the listeners of this podcast, who I imagine are quite dedicated to the mission of their organization. But even right. there, in a ministry full of folks who I think we have very good reason to imagine uh, don't want good things, we found that, uh, and I think the minister found, and me and my role supporting the minister found that, there were ways of managing folks uh, that would lead to better outcomes, often by giving them more autonomy, more discretion, right? That we couldn't sort of engineer our way around the people, right? That mm. people sitting in a minister's office, people sitting at the top, top of the system, couldn't avoid thinking about what the individuals wanted, needed, desired uh, to get the job done. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I'm a big believer you know, you you think a lot as I as I've listened and enjoyed your podcast over the months about uh, what each individual can do. Uh, it seems to me one of the things that one of the ways that those of us who study bureaucracies can maybe help support folks like you is by stepping back and thinking about kind of the broader management challenges, not just in 
New York City schools, uh, but in management practice around the bureaucracy writ large, mm -hmm. right? And you know, as you 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 asked the question on your webpage, how does one maintain her values when the institution does not appear to support them? I guess my question is, uh, if what we want as the public is the thing that her values, that your values reflect, how can we change the system so that the system better supports those values, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And in that sense, how, how can we better motivate the people who are there? And how can we both attract and retain uh, those people who really do care about the mission? I mean, how can we make it so that the action that currently rocks the boat uh, it doesn't, doesn't lead to somebody falling off anymore? How can we make it so that, um, so that the boat uh, is actually headed in that direction anyway? Mm. Um, and how can we, you know, I sometimes talk about, big fan of baseball, I sometimes talk about the field of dreams, right? Sometimes, mm -hmm. at best, we think about, uh, we think about, you know, today's employees and today's motivation, right? But I think there's a field of dreams element here, right? That is to say, if you build it, they will come. If you build a workplace mm -hmm. that provides an opportunity for people to have an impact, right? Mm -hmm. You will get more people who care about having an impact. You will keep the people who care more about having the impact. And thus the question of, do I have the right people for this kind of autonomous, this kind of empowered management style, uh, in some ways can be, uh, you know, sort of reversing cause and effect. Because if you manage in that style, you can attract those people and get to a better place uh, than you could otherwise. So, as yeah. you'll realize, it's my nature. That was a long answer to a short question. I'll stop there. <laughs> Let you redirect me, point me in the right direction, etc. Um, but you know, that's kind of where the book comes that's from. Okay. Personal experience, inside, etc. So we do podcasts. We we're not we're not making you know tweets. <laughs> we're podcasting. Excellent. We're, it's Excellent. a long form conversation. That's great. Awesome. So um, we wanted to ask you. You know, stepping back for a second, just. Uh, into how you got, um, how we, we, we connected with you most recently, you did tweet about your trip back from Senegal and how you uh, saw some, you witnessed uh, some mission-driven bureaucrats doing their job. And you also witnessed ways in which the bureaucracy was um, <laughs> not allowing people to do their yeah. job. Yeah. Yes. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you experienced and then and and then use that as a segue into um, how are you doing, you know, which is uh, really where we should, probably should have started. But but um, so so start with with your trip back and, and then how are you doing where you are now? Awesome. Well, thanks for asking. Um, and uh, sure. Happy to talk about that. So. You know, just uh, by way of context, my family and I, so again, I'm a, a professor these days and I'm on a sabbatical this year. So I've been doing research uh, in Senegal um, because one thing I should have mentioned is that, you know, to me, mission-driven bureaucrats are not just or particularly Americans or people who live in the developed world. They're mm -hmm. people who work and care right. for the state right. uh, and about the state anyway. And so, um, you know, I've been doing research in Senegal. We've been actually in Thailand in the fall and then moved to Senegal. Uh, just after just after the new year, uh, doing research there, and uh, you know, basically as uh, as COVID uh, came and so so changed our world over the last uh, I don't know six weeks or so, uh, Senegal acted pretty decisively and early. So when Senegal had just a couple dozen cases, uh, the country closed its borders, set up a 
a curfew, uh, closed schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, those things remain common in Senegal. Um, you know, the, the lack of commercial air transportation or ability to get out of the country um, and the idea that that might continue for some time to come, it might not, right? But, uh, but who knows? Uh, you know, made us think about whether we should take advantage of, uh, of this flight that the State Department was very kindly sort of uh, offering to American citizens uh, living in Senegal. Mm -hmm. And anyway, in the end, we decided to make the shift months before we had imagined we would uh, back, to, mm -hmm. back to the U.S. Um, and so, you know, it was uh, kind of a process of, and the people who operate these evacuation flights for the State Department, I had no idea, uh, but at least the people who, who operated that one, are this group from the State Department called Operations Medicine, right? So these are medical personnel uh, who operate, uh, in this case, a cargo plane, um, which, you know, has sort of, um, you know, medical, it's a quite medicalized environment, uh, people wearing sort of full bodysuit, personal protective equipment uh, with a ventilator, you know, sort of sterile rooms, uh, containment wow. areas, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in this case, about 150 passengers uh, in kind of part of the belly of a, of a big cargo plane. Um, and, uh, and, you know, so we take this flight, you know, it's uh, the organization. So these folks are basically just flying from country to country, trying to get people out. And so, you know, like the day before the flight, it's like, we're not exactly sure what the plane will be or how many mm -hmm. seats there will be or when it's going to show up. We kind of think it's this time, then it moved a little bit, all of which I am, I have no complaints about. I just pointed out as a way of kind of saying, this is sort of a people responding as quickly as they can to a bunch of requests and trying to do what they see as their mission. Um, right. And, and a, a laudable mission, I think it is, which is, you know, serving uh, American citizens in crisis, giving them a way uh, to get back home. Um, and so even if we weren't personally in crisis, of course, there's some others who indeed medically, medically are. Um, and so anyway, so we go through this process, you know, we get on this plane, we sit down, we get our temperature taken, we all get kind of um, the same sort of wristband you get in a hospital, right? Um, you know, we all sort of get hospital wristbands on the way in, write our temperature on it. Um, you know, uh, everyone's wearing masks. Um, and again, the, the folks operating the plane are in protective equipment. So we all sit down, guy comes up to the front of the plane and, you know, just to kind of orient us about what's going on, he says, you know, look, listen up, you know, this is a, uh, we are not flight attendants. This is not a normal flight. Um, we are kind of running around like crazy. We've been on the road back and forth for like six days. The reason I'm telling you all this is uh, because uh, you know, we're only on the ground in the U.S. once we get there for just a couple hours. We're trying to turn around. You know, sure, I, I imagine he's thinking, sure, probably every flight crew on every flight you've ever been on said, like, please clean up after yourself to save right. us time on the turn. But, you know, frankly, while I always try to pick up after myself, I feel a little bit differently about it if, you know, the plane's turning around at LaGuardia and, you know, that's, you know, kind of normal business, right? right. Uh, he's trying to say, like, look, we're trying to get other Americans out. Yeah. Keep, keep track of your stuff. You know, let's try to keep stuff in order because we want to get out as quickly as we can uh, after we get you folks home. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the passengers says, you know, and this is what I tweeted about, you know, one of the passengers says like, oh, you know, that's crazy, man. Are you are you getting overtime for this? And he says, no, no, we're 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 uh, 
we're government workers. We're, uh, you know, this is the yeah. job. I mean, this is yeah. what I signed up for. And he says to the point about, you know, kind of being mission driven, he says, you know, look, actually, this is, uh, this is, this is kind of why I signed up for the job. It's, hmm. uh, it's an, it's an honor to, to get you guys home. This is, this is why I'm in the game is basically mm-hmm. what I hear him saying. Right. And, uh, you know, one of my fellow passengers started applauding and then we all started applauding. And I found myself thinking, you know, I've spent years of my life, you know, researching a bunch of projects. I'm just starting to write the book, I should say. You know, I have some draft chapters, et cetera. But, you know, I have empirical projects in like six countries from, you know, Bangladesh to Detroit, thinking about mission driven bureaucrats in some ways, you know, and a lot of it's about a lack of recognition of, mm. uh, of bureaucrats and their mission. Um, and what, what, how much it could be a better place and a better public sector if everyone sort of bought into the fact that most people are in it for good reasons hmm. and that we don't want to set the rules to constrain the worst pro- person. Right. We want to set the rules to make the best person be able to do the best work or at least to consider that, right? Hmm. And here is somebody standing in front of me being recognized by a group of my fellow citizens, you know, who are saying... You know, awesome that you're doing this work. I recognize how it benefits me as a passenger on this plane. And at least, uh, you know, as I put it in the tweet, too, you know, I found myself thinking, you know, I am proud to be a citizen of a country whose government manages to attract and retain people like this. I don't think America is the only country where that's true, uh, but I think that's a beautiful thing. And so anyway, so we, you know, kind of a kind of a in a in a sort of tense moment tense situation kind of a kind of a beautiful experience at least for me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh you know six hours later however many hours later it's not actually that far to the car if you can go non-stop you know so mm-hmm. uh six eight hours later we land in dc and you know to the other side of what you said i'm thinking uh okay you know we had this kind of medical environment on the way in surely on the way out people are gonna sort of uh also you know take our temperature orient us you know uh, we're landing in the state of Virginia. Virginia already has a stay-at-home order. Probably a lot of these people on the flight are unaware of Virginia's laws because they have no connection to Virginia. They've just yeah. you know, happened to show up there because it's a State Department flight. Um, probably there'll be a quarantine order too, a self-quarantine order, et cetera. Uh, and I should say part of my thinking on that is influenced by the fact that you know, a month before, I had both come back from Dakar. I'd, I'd been in Europe giving some talks, uh, having some meetings. I'd come back to Dakar. And I had had a temperature check in late February or early March, I should say, temperature mm. check. Uh, I had had to give contact information. You know, when I had been sick, um, I had a cold. And a day later, you know, that led to a doctor saying, OK, you should uh, self-quarantine for 14 days, et cetera. Mm. And that was like March 3rd. A week before that, I had entered Guinea-Bissau, which is a country just south of Senegal. It's also one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, at that point in late February in one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, they were also doing temperature checks and asking mm. for medical background, et cetera. Mm. So, you know, it's six weeks later. I'm I'm arriving not on a commercial plane, not just by crossing a border in a taxi, but on a State Department medical evacuation flight um, to a country that has like, you know, far from an insignificant problem, I, as of course, all of our listeners and, and the two of you in New York City uh, have have more visceral awareness of than, uh, than, mm-hmm. than um, uh, you don't need me to tell you, I guess I, I mean to say. Um, but anyway, so, you know, we land uh, and what happens is exactly nothing. That is to say, we get to the, 
we get to arrivals just like normal arrivals at Dulles. I, as an airport, I use many times. Like mm-hmm. it works exactly the same way. You know, the shuttle, the terminal shuttle pulls up to immigration. We go through. We use global entry. You know, global entry means I, I travel enough that I've got it. Forgive me. I, I pay to, to, to cut the line, I suppose. And like, but you got to like use this kiosk. You put your passport down, and then you type some things in, etc. And I'm thinking like, this is a terrible idea. I'm not the first person to use this kiosk today. There must be some mm-hmm. better protocol. Like, do we even have some like hand sanitizer around here that we could use now that we've touched this kiosk? You know, there yeah. is some kind of like in the corner, but it's not marked. There's not, you know, we we do talk to an immigration officer, but that immigration officer, um, you know, basically he's wearing a mask, but otherwise it's a totally normal process. He doesn't ask us anything. He doesn't tell us anything. There's no medical procedure. We walk into baggage claim, pick up our bags, you know, walk out like any other arrival. Um, and, you know, it struck me that, you know, as is often the case, I guess, and, you know, as, uh, as Abram, you know, the way you asked the question suggests, I, I guess I share with you a view that often when things aren't working well, it's not, um, you know, I, I, I don't put a lot of blame at the individual immigration officer's feet here, right? So he right. obviously has a protocol he's meant to follow as people come in. Um, I do think it speaks... You know, the flight as a whole spoke to me both about the wonderful kind of quality and caliber of bureaucrats in America and around the world, Mm -hmm. um, but also about how kind of systems and procedures can keep those people uh, from being able to kind of kind of execute on their mission. Um, And, you know, just to touch on the last thing uh, you asked, Sam, how are we doing now? Again, super kind of you to ask. Uh, We're doing fine. You know, we're in a we didn't own a house in America, so we rented one on Airbnb, and you know, mm-hmm. we're in a we're in a cottage on a you know on a few acres in a place called Madison, Virginia. Which mm-hmm. you know, you had asked me a month ago, uh, is there such a place called Madison, Virginia? I would have said, I don't know, probably. I mm-hmm. think James Madison's from that area, right. so could be. <laughs> you know, some, some, that's plausible. But you know, lovely town. I mean. You know, uh, all doing well, you know, enjoying sort of um, space and, you know, privilege, which, you know, I think is another subtext, all of this, you know, our privilege to be able to, you know, be evacuated by the U.S. government when most of the people in Senegal would not have such an ability, our privilege to, you know, rent a place with space because we have the money and opportunity to do so, our privilege to, you know, keep our jobs and our uh, our livelihoods. at a time when so so many are losing theirs, and yeah. uh, you know, being so, able to come back is is far from the least way we're we're fortunate again. And so feel very grateful. That was such was a rich it? anecdote. Thank you for yeah, sharing thank you that. For sharing uh, y'all need to. You can read about it on Twitter, but it's it's great to hear about it um, verbally, uh, orally, I should say. Um, and I have so much to say and so many feelings, uh, but I just had one follow up, uh, clarifying question before we go on. So what what is the state of the coronavirus in Senegal right now? What do you know about um, what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, so currently Senegal is still uh, quite low in terms of the number of cases. I want to say uh, it's just above 300 cases now, right? Uh-huh. Uh, with like um, maybe one or two deaths and one evacuation. Um, do you have a so- sense of how that compares to other countries in Africa? Uh, it compares favorably. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, 
so this this crisis, uh, using that maybe as an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, coronavirus in Africa, if I could. Um, sure. You know, like you know, Africa has you know sixty plus countries. It is a incredibly varied place. That said, you know, as a general fact, a general stylized fact, you know, a lot of those countries are relatively disconnected from sort of global networks. You know, so Senegal has Senegal is one of the uh, one of the richer and um, and more connected countries in sub-Saharan Africa. That still means it almost surely gets fewer flights in a day than JFK gets in an hour. Um, mm -hmm. You know, on a normal uh, on a normal Tuesday, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've seen the virus kind of be slower to arrive uh, in a lot of these countries. Uh, and that has meant that those countries that have gone to kind of like a full lockdown mode early, which they've been mm -hmm. able to do, uh, both because it's been a little slower getting there and because, uh, frankly, these countries have more experience dealing with deadly infections than mm. uh, a lot of countries in Europe and North America, right? So West Africa dealt with Ebola not very long ago at all, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, their ability to react quickly has kept numbers low and even the relatively weak medical systems um, not overwhelmed, right? When we talk about bending the curve so we don't kind of exceed capacity in the medical system. You know, that said, that's only going to work, uh, it seems to me, I'm not an epidemiologist, but it seems to me that's only going to work so long as they stay closed. Um, and so the, the question now is kind of a terrible trade-off between you know, remaining closed and keeping the virus at bay um, or opening up and let it spread, letting it spread. And, you know, in that keeping the virus at bay, I mean, you know, we're talking here in America about the trade-offs uh, in economic and welfare terms. Uh, mm -hmm. But of course, in a country like Senegal, most of the economy, and this is true for most of Sub-Saharan Africa, most of the economy is informal, right? There aren't mm -hmm. formal sector firms, which means there's no way to kind of give money to those firms to keep people employed. There's no way to do hmm. targeted unemployment benefits if you don't know who was employed in the first place, right? Uh, people live, of course, uh, you know, the number of Americans living on $2 a day or less is a tragedy. That said, those ratios are much higher in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And that means that people don't have access to food, don't have access to frankly, ways to stay alive in the long term in lots of countries, right. uh, or at least substantial numbers of people in each country. And so, you know, coronavirus is not killing very many people in Senegal right now. Um, the question is, in what ways the security measures that have been put in place to stop coronavirus either are now or will, if continued in the medium term. Um, right. And uh, that's the kind of terrible choice that I think well-meaning folks in government uh, face in Senegal and, and throughout. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's, um, such important context and nuance on a story that, um, you know, we, we talk a lot in, uh, in my team about, um, the idea of single stories and it stems from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Ted talk about single stories and, and this idea that we have a single story about Africa and what happens in Africa and how Africa works. And in fact, there's, so many countries, you know, let alone, right, all sorts of nuances within all of those, um, 
all of those different areas and people groups. Um, so yeah, uh, thank you for sharing that um, that word from there. And so, so I wanted to uh, pivot and ask you something that we often ask it ask uh, our guests, which is, what's an important challenge that uh, that you see yourself as facing personally? Um, you know, as you okay, you you settle into your pattern uh, in the in the shack in Madison, um, yeah. And and then you know, as you think about pivoting to the next round uh, of your work or the issues that you're that you're focused on and, and 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 trying to bring attention to you know what are what are some challenges that you're facing yeah uh thanks and i i have to say this is quite a this is quite a shack you know i mean it's not a, not a chalet yeah. by any means but you know <laughs> um you know it's a it's a lovely lovely spot um and so you know that um so I, I would say, you know, look, readjustment is always tricky, um, as is, but I would say, frankly, the biggest challenges I face are the challenges I think all of us face, um, who are fortunate enough to be the sorts of workers who are not facing the challenges of trying to pay our rents, um, you know, next week, which is, you know, in this new reality we find ourselves in, uh, what does, what do we want? for ourselves and for the for the things we care about, you know, personally and the people we care about, uh, personally and professionally. And, you know, I, uh, I find myself, I think much again, like, like the rest of us thinking that I am in a very new environment for me physically, for many people not, but, you know, and what does that, what does that look like? Um, you know, what do I want my five-year-old son to take away? when he looks back a year from now mm-hmm. uh, or, or 10 years from now, this, right? So, you know, when you're five, I mean, you know, in a year, his memory of America will be mostly America with coronavirus, right? Mm-hmm. Because a six-year-old yeah. doesn't remember too many things from before he's four, right? As, mm-hmm. uh, as we all know, right? That's right? And so what does that world, what do I want America to mean to him? What do I want this period to mean? That's to right. Mean to um, and, you know, Professionally speaking, you know, I find myself, um, frankly, particularly as a former sort of policymaker who dealt with crisis, right, uh, in various places, um, you know, or practitioner who dealt with crisis, I find myself, uh, you know, feeling a little bit unsatisfied with my own, uh, and to what I find my own personal challenges, you know, with my own understanding of the ways I can contribute here, right? Mm. You know, the kinds of work I now do and the work I can do remotely, um, you know, I, I find myself thinking there must be a way. So there's so many things I can't do and I'm not part of an existing policy team or process, but, you know, I can analyze data. Uh, I can think through policy processes, right? Uh, you know, I know this isn't a great kind of getting to know you period in new teams, et cetera, but I find myself thinking that much of the time I'm very happy with the ability the academy gives me to step back and away from particular problems and think in sort of broader narratives Mm -hmm. um, and more kind of like systematic uh, analyses. Um, That said, um, this doesn't feel to me like the time for that. And and I guess I find that to be uh, a challenge, this question of if we think this is the new reality, yeah, how do I fit and how do I find meaning? Uh, particularly when I find myself in a country and a place uh, that I never imagined I would be, at least uh, not, you know, on April 15th. Yeah, and, and I think the other part of that, too, is 
uh, how do I find meaning? But also part of the reason we're asking ourselves that question is we're so aware of who is making physical sacrifices, sacrifices of their own safety and who isn't. And it just feels like we ought to be spreading that burden more evenly, hmm. right? Totally. Not that any one of us wants to go yeah. put our life on the line. <laughs> um, that's not what I'm signing up right. for, right? But but I wish that there was a way for, for me to um, do more so that the burden could be more balanced, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think that's, I, I totally agree. And I mean, if I was, uh, and maybe some states or cities are already thinking of this, you know, I know there's been a call for folks who actually have uh, COVID immunity, um, who have mm -hmm. been exposed to it, to uh, take up frontline jobs. It, it strikes me that if I was, you know, chief of staff to the Virginia uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services or something like that, or New York City, you know, mm -hmm. what I would say is, what would it look like to have a set of volunteer frontline workers who are from low risk groups, right? You know, mm -hmm. what can I do physically? What can I get in a car, turn on the engine or get on a subway or whatever um, and actually do uh, to contribute to the front, to this kind of frontline yeah. effort? Um, and does it make sense for people like me? You know, that is to say, you know, people who are fortunate enough to be uh, healthy and though no longer young by most people's standards, uh, not yet in a high risk group for, uh, for COVID, um, you know, to actually, actually contribute. Um, you know, do Meals on Wheels need to be delivered, you know? Is there, can we set up surge grocery delivery that, uh, that targets people who don't want to go anywhere near a grocery store? I mean, it's great that we let people in who are over 60, 70 at 7 a.m. What would it look like to reverse that process? Would that be safer? Um, and, uh, and, you know, how can we, how can we sort of, um, you know, and maybe those aren't the right suggestions either. I just mean to say that, um, I think it, it, I have this feeling that there are a lot of people who think there's more that they could do and are unsure how to physically yeah. do it. Yes. Giving money is great. Yeah. Talking about the problem is great, but you know, to me, there's no, there's no substitute for, you know, putting one foot in front of the other and mm -hmm. physically going somewhere and doing something. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, well, and I do know, sorry. It, in, in New York, there is, I can't remember the name of it. Maybe Abram, you remember there's a, um, a way to sign up to, to deliver groceries. Um, so I think it's invisible, like, invisiblehands.com. Invisible right. Um, there's yeah, also those... New York Cares. Um, there yeah. are organizations that match volunteers yeah. to volunteer opportunities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I, I don't know. A... I don't know where they are right now. But I think one yeah. thing that I'm hearing from what you're saying, uh, Dan, is is this idea that like how I fit in and what I do in this time really matters. And it really matters because my yeah. kids are watching. It also really matters because like. I do have something that I know. I do have experiences that I've been through. I do have something to offer. I know I have something to offer. And then it's just a matter of finding, you know, where that value plugs in, which the current system, the current capitalist, you know, structures don't really assign people with their capabilities to the highest leverage point. We have to go out and hunt and find where our spot is, you know. Uh, and that's one of the hardest things for people to do mid to late careers to figure out, well, what is my special magic and what are the what are the contextual things that I need in order to bring out my magic and, and, and contribute it? Um, how do I manage the people that are under me or that are around me or that are above me so that, you know, the, the people in the room are bringing forward their best 
their abundance in order for us to solve problems instead of operating from a place of fear, from a place of what we have to cut, what we have to discontinue, what we've lost and won't be able to do anymore. Um, like what are what are the ways for us to engage in creativity and abundance making now that things are going to be different? Yeah, totally. Sure. I think that's beautifully put. I mean, you know, in some ways, so uh, a friend of mine, uh, Molly Kinder, who's at who's at Brookings Institution, has, uh, has been writing a lot about sort of frontline workers, um, you know, low wage frontline workers um, and this kind of discourse around their uh, around their heroism. Um, and one of by not not her only point, but one of her points is, uh, you know, um, applause is great. Uh, a living wage would be great, too. Um, right. And uh, the latter, the latter might be longer lasting in some ways, right? Um, ding, ding, ding. It strikes me that, uh, and I'm a hundred percent on board. I'm a hundred percent on board yep. that uh, that message. I, I, it is true though. It still has as its premise that what we're trying to do is align the value of the task, right, to uh, its reward via price, right, which is the mm -hmm. center of mm -hmm. a capitalistic mm -hmm. system, yep. right? And I think you're, I think you're right that we don't have a lot of matching mechanisms, you know, volunteer matching, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, we, we don't have a lot of systems for optimizing that don't use price as an intermediary. Forgive right. me for sounding like an economist, but yeah. I think that's, that's or, or it where we're, where we're not sure how to price things, which often happens. We're not sure what the price should be. We rely on our fundamental skill as humans, which is social interrelation. We ask friends, yeah. we get information, we, we decide together, we agree we're not going to pay more than this or whatever. Like, you know, we engage in social behavior in order to solve the problem. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and, and here, I mean, I think, um, you know, social distancing, one of the things I think, uh, especially if this becomes a, you know, a year long, not a month long or a two month long situation, we need to start thinking about right. is not just how do we maintain existing social connections, right? Mm -hmm. uh, how do we continue to work in the teams we already have? But how do we form new ones? How do we engage with new people? Um, you know, when we think about management and interaction, it's not just down to the teams, down in a kind of like, if we imagine an organogram sense to the teams we manage or across to the people who are in our social sphere or horizontally on our team or fellow teachers, right, or fellow principals or whatever. Um, it's also up, right? Um, that is to say, there's agency in all of these directions. Um, and that up doesn't yeah. just need to be to our manager, it also can be to policymakers. It also yeah. can be to institutions. Um, yeah. And one of the things that I find um, potentially super, uh, you know, silver lining would never wave a wand and make it this way, but a potential silver lining to the current situation is that we may find new ways for folks to express voice um, in ways and to people who they would not otherwise have been able to, right? So that is to say, we're all open the kind of online remote interaction in a way we haven't been before. How do we take uh, how do we take advantage of that fact? Absolutely, well said. So Dan, this has been amazing, um, and uh, we're really really glad to uh, meet you, um, not on Twitter but <laughs> face to face over Zoom on the podcast. Twitter, uh, Twitter, and Zoom are also real life. So in this kind of real life. Zoom is more real than Twitter, though. <laughs> it's true. Um, I'm, 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 I'm going to say that. But um, 
we just want to ask you before you go um, two questions. Really, I'm gonna I'll give them both to you. Number one, we always ask our guests, "What's one thing that's bringing you calm in the midst of this storm?" Um, so that's number one, and I'll, I'll let you answer that as well as is there anything you want to plug? Um, I heard you say I've been rambling. That makes me think of your Twitter handle. You can let people know what that is um, or anything else that people should look out for from you. So uh, the calm and then what do you want to plug? Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I would say uh, I am uh, incredibly fortunate as I've, as I've tried to point up a couple times. Um, and one of the ways I'm, I'm fortunate is to have, you know, uh, you know, a uh, wonderful sort of nuclear family, you know, of my, of my wife and my son. Um, and I would say that, um, you know, one of the things that brings me calm is, uh, is I think one of the things crisis does is it, uh, and changing situations does, is it lets us reevaluate our priorities. Um, and at least for me personally, I find myself um, feeling, feeling the calm of, Realizing that maybe some of the things I've been uh, I've been putting a lot of my kind of stress eggs in the basket of uh, are maybe less important than they felt uh, to me a month or two ago, um, and to remember, you know, sort of um, what matters and what impact I I care about, um, you know, both uh, in in a truly kind of personal close sense and uh, and on the world, and what things mm -hmm. are just kind of like professional bells and whistles that you know. Come what may, hmm. great, great if they show up, but uh, gravy, but, but not to put more stock. Gravy, gravy mm -hmm. is a nice way of putting it. Yeah. I like gravy. Me too. There's no gravy. Still happy to eat the turkey. Right. You know. Right. So, right. Um, so yeah. And uh, to the plugging, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything sort of actively to plug at the moment. As you, as you note, my my Twitter handle is uh, rambletastic. As you've seen, uh, that is true to form. My website is my name Dan Honig H O N I G. Uh, dot info, you know, I will have a book on mission driven bureaucrats out, uh, out someday. Um, <laughs> that day is going to be a year like 2022. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, okay. I wouldn't, uh, wait with bated breath, but you know, if you are a kind of, uh, mission driven bureaucrat, if you see yourself that way, uh, and you have a story you want to tell about, um, about any of the kinds of things I've touched on here, please, uh, do get in touch. Um, and, um, hope, uh, both of you and all of your listeners, uh, are and remain well, and that uh, we collectively, as a community, uh, find more and more ways to kind of uh, move our various mission-driven, mission-driven balls forward in this period and for all time. All right, thank you, Dan. <laughs> Appreciate great. it. Thank you so much. If, yeah, we thank will you. Thanks for the opportunity. Touch. We're really glad to meet you. Thank you so much. We're going to ask about the book too. So now you're on the hook. Awesome. Sounds great. I look forward to. It. Look forward to. It. See you. Take care. Thanks again. Be well. Bye. So let's end like good radicals. What is one thing that you learned today, Sam, that you can use to create a more just and equitable world? Oh, man. That was a lot. That was a lot. The, <laughs> the was rambles were-tastic. Yes. He was really ramble-tastic. Um, I mean, the, the, the moment that stuck with me in the beginning was when he spoke about the return from Senegal and what happened when he stepped off the flight in, in Dallas and what he was expecting versus what, it, what he saw. And I am just 
I just felt myself, I still feel infuriated um, mm. because government matters. And here's our government falling down. And it's not at the level of individuals. It just was an anecdote that really uh, illustrated the importance of systems and how people can operate within these systems um, or are restricted from operating in a way that makes sense within these systems. So to to be at Dulles and to have everybody get on the shuttle and handle the same devices and, and no hand sanitizer, no one getting their temperature check. Um, and to, and, and I just found myself relating to being a bureaucrat in a system that's not working the way it should be. Um, you know, so the lesson there, I mean, I don't know, man, I'm just, I'm just mad. But what about you, April? I mean, that's okay. We need to make space for anger and disappointment. Yeah. You know, we. I've been talking a little bit, um, texting mainly, but also kind of talking in different Zoom calls and phone calls about making space for grief. You know, yeah. that a lot of communities are are overwhelmed by grief right now. I think a similar, you know, sentiment can be said about anger. We have to make space for that frustration. For that um, critical um, expectation that we could have done better, right? It didn't have to be this way, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's okay. Um, the thing that I take away uh, is kind of more related to this idea about like your value and how people perceive your value and how you perceive your value and how that kind of comes into this whole question of finding where you fit. Um, you know, I think it's so it's just so prevalent among the mid career, you know, people of color that I spent a lot of my time interacting with very intelligent, capable people who could do any number of things with their time, but who choose, you know, as as uh, Dan kind of like define this group of people who like are mission driven, right, who choose to be involved in something professionally that that really matters it's not just about selling or winning a competition uh in the marketplace but it's about helping people educating children in the case of schools right um you know that those uh people um who are who are dedicated to kind of a life of service in some ways are experiencing a range of things right now and one thing i think that some are experiencing teachers in particular but also Others who work in schools and who work in school systems all over the country, which is a huge chunk of our economy, teachers. That's why teachers unions is such a big deal in elections because mm -hmm. it's a really large constituency. There are a lot mm -hmm. of people who, you know, it really normal is gone. Normal is a memory from weeks ago. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, there are people whose whose uh, conference call class is all but empty except for a few dedicated students. There are other people mm -hmm. who are convening, you know, an, an ever-expanding circle of kids who hear about this teacher and how the, how relevant their work is. Um, you know, all of a sudden, we're in this kind of science fiction, digital participation world, um, and how we perceive our own value as critical, um, uh, critical practitioners, practitioners of values about how society should be built that are critical of the way things currently are, um, how we should engage in this process in this moment is so connected to how much we really are confident and believe in the value that we have, 
how much we trust the people around us and the value that they have, how much we learn to move at the speed of trust, right? To, mm. to sow seeds together and not to be accountable for made up results and numbers, but to be accountable for relationships and good relations to people mm. and communities and land. That's what it's mm. about. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm I'm super grateful for the conversation, and also we're kind of over. I'm a little bit of a rambler too, so rambler plus rambler equals a longer podcast. So you guys know. <laughs> but it, yeah, sometimes it's gonna go like that. Yeah, but Abram, that was like that. super super well stated. So well stated. I might have to go back and listen to it again. You got to eat your own dog food. That's a test of whether it's any good. So you'll be dog fooding this episode. Yes, yes, I think for sure. There's a lot here. Well, we're gonna end by being good bureaucrats. Uh, the views expressed here are personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for logging on. Thanks for logging on.